Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Today's reading is from Daniel 1, 17 through 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. At the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and, amongst, and among all of them was none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king had acquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of the king Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Thank you, Davina. All right, well, hey, as that um, uh, scripture reading and video kind of tuned you into, we are in our second week in a 12-week uh, series on the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 21. If you were here last week, we looked at uh, the first half of Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And if you're going to be with us for the next 12 weeks and you, you weren't here last week to hear the sermon, I highly encourage you, please go on the website and listen to that sermon because there's lots of foundational uh, um, theme-setting content in that sermon that we're going to be assuming for the rest of the series. So please go back and listen to that. It's important. I don't have enough time to fill in on um, the content from there, but I'll talk briefly about the message last week. What we saw last week was a historical context of what's taking place in our text in Daniel 1. And what we saw was that Jerusalem, Judah, the southern kingdom, the nation state, the people of God, the southern kingdom, uh, and, and, and its capital, Jerusalem, was sieged by Babylon in 605 BC. And so what happened was the white flag was kind of raised of sorts, and now Judah became a puppet state of Babylon after they were sieged. And so what we saw there is that taxes had to be paid to show their loyalty to Babylon. And so the temple in Jerusalem, the artifacts, the vessels in the temple were taken from there to the temples in Babylon to serve their gods. And then in addition to that, um, some youth of the, of the no, noble family of royal birth, of royal lineage, if you will, were, were exiled, the best and the brightest, some teenagers. And so last week, um, if you were here, you know that we are introduced to in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we are introduced to four teenagers, and those teenagers uh, were Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. And these four uh, teens were ripped from their homes. They were taken into the Babylonian palace for a three-year indoctrination process. 
that uh, was twofold. One, the Babylonians sought to rename them. They were all given uh, new names, and then the Babylonians sought to reprogram them. And what we saw last week, what we're looking at, was that what that Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar, what they were trying to do is they were trying to turn exiles into citizens turn exiles into citizens. They were trying to get these Jews who were faithful to Yahweh alone to turn them into Babylonians who'd be faithful to the Babylonian gods. And the dilemma we ended the sermon with last week was this. What we're looking at was this question. Will these four teenagers remain faithful to the Lord while they're on foreign soil? Will they remain faithful to their allegiance to Yahweh when everything in Babylon is trying to rename them and reprogram them? And also what we looked at last week is that their dilemma is also our dilemma. Their dilemma is our dilemma. The theme for this sermon series is faithfulness in exile. And what we're going to be exploring is how the 21st century church can be faithful to King Jesus while we too are on foreign soil. Because the church in America, the church in uh, the UK, or the church in Uzbekistan is not home yet. We're citizens of a far greater kingdom, and we, we love and we bow down to a far greater king. That's where our true citizenship lies. And so then the dilemma, the question we face is, will we be faithful to Jesus, to our true king and our better kingdom, while living as exiles and while living on foreign soil? And so in our text today, the latter half of Daniel 1, we see a beautiful example of what it looks like to not just be faithful, but to thrive in exile. What does it look like to thrive on foreign soil? And so one of the key takeaways this morning, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in, is this, is that Daniel's faithfulness, Daniel and his friends' faithfulness, their faithfulness to God was simply their response to God's faithfulness to them. That's what we're going to be looking at, is how our faithfulness is first and foremost a response in God first moving in our lives with his faithfulness, his favor, his grace, his compassion, his mercy. And we, we have the best calling in the world. We just get to respond to this good God who's faithful to us. And so let's go to him in prayer and then we'll dive into the rest of Daniel 1 here. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we say thank you for the privilege and the blessing to call you Father. May we never take that for granted. We're here today for your glory, for your honor, for your name. Love that song we were singing earlier. You're worthy. You're worthy, Jesus. So we come before you grateful, and I come before you asking that, that I would decrease, I would step, I would, I would exit stage left, and that, Jesus, you would be seen for truly valuable and precious you are to us. So Holy Spirit, come in power, and I pray, Lord, that, that you would do what only you can do and open our eyes to see Jesus and, the, and, the, and the, the price of our redemption, the love that he has for us. I just pray, Lord, that you would unveil to us just truly how precious your sons and daughters are to you, Lord Jesus. Teach us where we don't truly know the depths of your faithfulness to us. Would you reveal that to us, just the depths of your faithfulness to us, even in spite of our fickleness? and our unfaithfulness. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to divide this text into two chunks. The first half, we're going to be looking at Daniel's resolve, Daniel's faithfulness. And so I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. This is a large chunk of scripture, but do your best to read, uh, uh, stay focused with me as I read this. So verse 8, but Daniel resolved, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward from the chief of the eunuchs, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine and, 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 the, and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So the first thing I want to highlight here that's important for us to realize, again, the context is, is they are in a three-year indoctrination process in the palace in uh, Babylon being reprogrammed, being reprogrammed. And what Daniel does here, the first thing that sticks out to me is Daniel makes a decision. Daniel has a resolve. Daniel makes a choice. What Daniel does here is he, he draws a big line in the sand, right? And it divides two allegiances. He says, this line in the sand marks two kingdoms. Babylon, you can only come this far. And, and watch this, Daniel, you can only go this far. And so he draws a line in the sand. He says in verse 8 here, Daniel chose not to defile himself with the food and the wine of Babylon, with the bacon and the bourbon of the palace. And so, and so he has here an electrical fence around his heart, and that's what Daniel is declaring, is you can only go this far, and I can only go this far. So one of the first things we learn is that for the exile whose heart desire is faithfulness to God, there has to be a line in the sand where your interaction, your engagement in the culture around you only goes so far with what you say, what you see, what you do, what you watch, so on and so forth. And so my challenge to us this morning would be, is there even a line in the sand for us, church, today? Is there a line in the sand where we say, hey, this is as far as I go? Because if I cross this line, it blurs the line between faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness um, to the, uh, the foreign soil that, I'm, that I'm, I'm on. And so the truth of the matter is this. This is crucially important for us to understand, is that us drawing lines in the sand to protect our hearts, this only comes from a desire for God and to be faithful to him. Because the truth of the matter is this, is that, is that we guard, we protect what we treasure the most and what we value, right? That which is most precious to us, we guard with everything we got. I was in Ashburn uh, last week driving, and I don't know if you've been to Ashburn, but it's, um, I think it's like a government a, a hub of like hundreds of thousands of square footage of like these top secret government buildings. So I'm driving, Jen's with me, I'm driving past this building, and I, I'm almost crashing because I'm like, this is, this, there has got to be some like, Nicholas Cage, like hidden artifact in this building that they're protecting, right? Because it's a brand new building. You see security cameras all around. There are no windows whatsoever, just like, the, like a small front door, and it's just like concrete. In addition to that, there's these massive barbed wire fences that are like you would kill yourself even trying to climb. And then this is what, this is what tripped me up, is this building in particular, it had a moat. Like it's a castle. No joke, it had a, there was water around it, and I was waiting for like a drawbridge to come down, you know, and uh, I don't know, like a you know, SUV with tinted windows to drive across the drawbridge, and it comes back up, but 
I couldn't help but think, I couldn't help but think to myself when I saw all that protection, the lengths, the, the depths the government went to protect that building, I couldn't help but think, what is so valuable in that building? What are they protecting? That they would, they would build a moat, like we're in like the 11th century, you know, or whatever. It's crazy, I've never seen that before. But here's what I'm getting at, is this, is if our walk with Jesus is the single most precious thing to us, then we naturally will guard that fellowship and communion with him above all else. Like if Jesus is truly the one of surpassing worth that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 3, then, then there, will, there, there will be lines in the sand because we protect what we value. That fellowship, that communion with our Savior, that relationship we have, that thing that is most precious to our hearts, we will protect that. And so what's interesting here, what's interesting here is that Daniel drew the line in the sand with the food and the wine of the palace, not with the pagan demonic education. Right? Remember we talked about last week that the Babylonians were both coming for the head and the heart. They were, they're trying to reprogram and, and, and kind of renew these guys' minds of sorts to Babylonian ways, but they're also going for their hearts with the food and the wine of the palace. And it's almost here that Daniel wasn't too concerned about the head knowledge thing, right? Maybe he, he knew his scriptures, maybe. Maybe he, he knew this Yahweh, and he knew that, hey, I can study the religious myths of, you know, the Babylonians. Right? I know it's, it is what it is. I can even study divination and the mantic arts and reading omens because I know who truly has the power to change and the power to heal. It's not, these, it's not these Babylonian gods. It's Yahweh. So for Daniel, we see him actually rise to the top of his class in this Babylonian college of sorts. But where Daniel drew the line was not with the education. Where he drew the line was, what was when they were coming for his heart with the bourbon and the bacon, right? So for Daniel, the battlefield that he was, he was drawing the line in the sand was the battlefield for his heart. It was his love, his passion, his joy, his delight. I believe, I believe this for God that he knew could easily, easily be quenched through what the palace was offering him, right? Palace is whispering in his ear, isn't, isn't Babylon greater? Is, look at what the Babylonian gods give you. Can Yahweh give you this, right? And so we, we encounter in our text the, the famous Daniel fast, right? Anyone here heard of the Daniel fast, right? Ten days for six-pack abs, right? You want six-pack abs, boom, like um, the Daniel fast. What Daniel does here is he only eats things that grow naturally, right? Vegetables and water, only things that grew naturally. And that's symbolizing his dependence on God alone for his provision. And there's lots of debate, or not a lot of debate, but there's some debate here, if you were to read some commentaries on this, of, of why this fast in particular. Was it because the food wasn't kosher? And he's like, I'm not going to eat food that's not kosher. Or was it because um, this food was, was offered up like sacrificially to the Babylonian gods before they ate it? But the vegetables would have been as, well, for me, uh, in my study, what, what I truly believe is I believe that this, this fast for 10 days, you know, or just, just uh, you know, this lifestyle of eating stuff that only came uh, naturally was, was spiritual. It was spiritual, not just physical. This issue for Daniel was an issue of spiritual health first and foremost before it was physical. And I believe Daniel here with this fast, he's declaring, he says, bring me God's food. I don't need the king's food. I think that's what he's saying. So Yahweh, he's my king. He's my provider. Pick that broccoli straight from the ground. That's what I'm eating. I refuse to bend my knee to Nebuchadnezzar and declare that he's my provider because that's what you're after. You're trying to get me to bend my knee to Nebuchadnezzar and say he's my provider and his food is better than what Yahweh 
provides for me. And so for Daniel, the simple truth would be sipping and swirling the, some of the best wine in the world and consuming some of the best food in the world at that time would have been for Daniel to remove all lines in the sand. Right? It would, it would have blurred all the lines in the sand. There would have been no more lines in the sand protecting his heart and his allegiance to Yahweh. And I believe this. Dallas Willard has been very influential in my thinking on fasting. And if you've read what Dallas Willard has wrote about on fasting, he says fasting is a feast. You're, you're, you're abstaining from certain things so that you can feast more on the Lord. And I think Daniel's fast was a, a feast. Often we look to Daniel and his devotion and we only point out the negative, right? It's easy to, to read into this and look at Daniel and be, look, look at what he gave up, man. Oh, man, the fine food and the fine wine of the palace. He, he's so holy, but he's probably miserable, right? Who wants to eat broccoli and carrots and potatoes? when you could be eating what the king offers, right? What a holy, miserable man, right? That's often we think fasting, like, oh, I'm holy, but I'm, I'm miserable because that's holy, right? No. What if, what if this is a scenario? Just what if? What if Daniel had so much delight in God, so much joy in his knowledge of God and his walk with God that this wasn't a fast, but a feast? So he's declaring, he says, keep the bacon and the bourbon. I have no need because my king's food is better. What I feast on is his love, his joy, his peace, his grace. Grace is all sufficient for me. Don't even steam those vegetables. I'll eat them raw, right? <laughs> and so my friend, I have a friend recently who uh, the Lord just, just did some amazing things in his life in December. And uh, he, he, he never had a drinking problem, but like a lot of people, he just drank socially. And if you're hanging out with people all the time, you're drink, drinking a lot. But it wasn't necessarily a drinking problem. But as he, he, he an electrical fence, a line he drew in the stand, in this season of his life, he's like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to drink. And, and there's some kickback from his friends who are also believers. They're saying, man, I never knew you had a problem with drinking. He's like, I don't I have a problem with drinking. His response, this is why I'm sharing this, his response that he told me was wonderful, that he told his friends, says, what I'm drinking of is far better. Ain't that good? What I'm drinking of is far better. What does that mean? I have no need. God's grace is sufficient for me. And in addition to this, my friend was telling me, this, I've known this friend for a long time. This was actually kind of shocking to me because I've known him for a long time. And this isn't kind of the, the guy you'd expect to do this. But now he spends, uh, not on a daily basis, but he'll... he'll uh, more than he used to spend hours and hours in prayer and worship just wanting to be in the presence of God and, and giving God the honor that's due his name right and, and I looked at him I said and I said listen you're doing that not because you you, you have to you're doing that because you want to right and he goes absolutely that's that's where I want to be because what I'm drinking of is far better Psalm 34 8 says this Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And bless, and, and I love this last line. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And often I think we need to read that the way it's presented before us, where that O oh is, is an exclamation of joy. It's, oh my gosh, taste and see that God is good. And blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And what we learn here in this text is that one of the best ways to guard your heart like Daniel is doing here is to delight in God. Because that quiets the temptations that are coming for your heart is if you have so much joy in God that you can say, what I'm drinking of is far better. The Lord, I can taste and see that the Lord is good so that the food and wine that Babylon is offering me, I don't need to partake in. 
And so returning to the question, how are we to remain faithful to Jesus while we're in exile and we're daily bombarded with temptations to bring us closer, to cross over that line that we have set? The way we do that, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's love, it's joy, it's delight. It's walking with God, abiding in his love, as Jesus teaches us in John 15. And so the line in the sand for us that we were to draw only comes after we come to know Jesus as the one of surpassing worth, as the one of surpassing worth, Philippians 3. And so Daniel knew here, before we transition to the next point, Daniel here knew that the feast, Daniel knew that the table that the good shepherd of Psalm 23 prepared for him in the midst of his enemies was far better than the feast that the enemies were preparing for him in the midst of Yahweh, because Yahweh was there with him in exile. And the second thing we see here is that, yes, Daniel made a choice, and Daniel resolved, but listen, church, he did it respectfully. He did it respectfully. He went to the governing authorities in Babylon and asked for permission, and he asked if it'd be okay to change his diet. And when the, when the higher-ups kind of countered him, as we saw in the text, he explained himself logically, rationally, and kindly. He said, hey, you know what? Let's test this for 10 days, and if we're not, you know, if we're not looking better in appearance than all the other dudes who are, you know, uh, fine dining and whining and all that stuff, then, uh, then do as you see fit. But give, give me 10 days to see, to see this out. And so I think what we learn here is that for us as exiles, what, what faithfulness in exile, uh, faithfulness in exile doesn't have to come at the cost of, of decency and respect for others. Does that make sense? Oftentimes we draw a line in the sand as a church and we think that we now have to like lob grenades at those who are on the other side of that line as they're our enemy, when, um, in fact, I don't think we need to do that. Because what we see here, Daniel, watch this. Daniel didn't rush to social media. He didn't rush to Facebook and like, I can't believe these pagan Babylonians who like, you know, he takes a picture of the food and like hashtag of like pagans, you know, I'm demonic. Like, I won't, how dare these people, right? Why did, why did Daniel not do that? Because he didn't have Facebook, right? That's why he didn't, he didn't do that. He had MySpace, um, which you can't do that. Anyways, um, there. Here's the deal. This is, this is, we're going to talk about 1 Peter 3.15 here, but we can draw a line in the sand church. And, and there, there's, there's, there's personal legalism that I think is good. Like each of us is going to look different for each of us, right? Like I'm weak in certain areas, you're weak in certain areas that I'm not weak in. So when we draw those lines in the sand to guard our communion and our fellowship with Jesus, it doesn't have to mean that we judge other people who don't do that, even in the church. Because I think oftentimes when we draw lines in the sand for ourselves, then we come and we judge people in the church. But most importantly, we judge those who don't know Jesus. And because they don't know our precious Savior, they're going to act like people who don't know Jesus. They're going to look a little bit different than we, we do. And so uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. 1 Peter 3.15, I love this. It's, it just puts this way better than I could. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What he's saying there is draw a line in the sand. Protect what you value. Guard your hearts. Honor, your, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that is the hope that, for the hope that's in you. We are to be engaging the culture around us. They should be seeing something different. They should be asking us questions. And then we should be prepared to give them a, a reasonable defense of our hope in Jesus. And this is how we're supposed to do it. With self-righteousness and condemnation. Is that what the text says? No, no, no. The text says, the text says, with gentleness and respect. And what we learn here, church, is faithfulness to Christ 
doesn't have to come at the cost of us losing Christ-likeness. And then my follow-up to that would be, what good is it to get online and type away, keyboard on fire, five paragraphs, post, all condemnation with no story of redemption that Jesus has to offer? What good is that to anybody? And hmm. shame on me. And shame on us when all we do is condemn and we never make it to the redemption and the hope that Jesus has to offer people who were in the same boat that we were before Jesus grabbed a hold of our hearts. We don't have to lose Christ-likeness by being faithful to him. Share your faith. Be bold. Share the truth in love. But let's not stop short and, and, and not tell people about the redemption and the love and the hope that Jesus has for them, right? And so transitioning to our next point, faithfulness to Yahweh was a decisive resolve and choice for these teenagers, and that choice was honored. What we see in our text is that they passed the test after 10 days and were found to be of better appearance than all the others. And then here's what happened uh, next, verses 17 through 21. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first reign of King Cyrus. So what we see in our text is that this is graduation day. These four teenagers graduated summa cum laude. They graduated at the very top of their class. And not only that, they were immediately placed in a position to be advisors to the king of Babylon. And they were found to be 10 times greater than even Babylonian citizens in being advisors to the king. And the first thing that sticks out that we cannot miss is God's sovereign grace and his presence and his faithfulness to these four youths. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them. God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. How did these four youths thrive in exile? It was God's grace to them. It was God's faithfulness. Who takes responsibility here for their thriving in exile? God calls dibs right here. He says, yes, is my faithfulness first and foremost, and they stewarded that faithfulness. They stewarded it well, right? And if God didn't give them these things, this favor, these skills, this wisdom, this understanding, they would not have prospered. And so what we learn here is that God was with the exiles. He was present, for them, present with them, and he was for them. He was faithful to them. And the key to their faithfulness is simply responding to and stewarding the, the faithfulness of God. Like we, the, the parable of the talents, God first gives. God gives us his grace. He gives us the gift of his son, and he gives us talents and treasures and, and, and spiritual gifts, and, and, and we just respond to God's continual lavishing grace upon us, grace upon grace, by stewarding that grace 
returning with an attitude of gratitude, humble gratitude, and faithfulness to him as he gives us those good gifts. Because that's what scripture clearly makes uh, uh, evident to us is that God is the giver of all good things. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And our response to God's goodness and kindness and grace to us and the gifts that he gives us should be one, humble gratitude, and secondly, responsible stewardship. And oftentimes, um, there's a, I feel like the self-help movement has really infiltrated our thinking in the church today. And oftentimes, when you push out the person uh, of Jesus, say, I don't need you. Apart from you, I can do whatever I want. When Jesus says in John 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing. Self-help says, self-help Christianity, which is just give me the rules and I'll follow Jesus. I don't need Jesus. What's that, what's that saying is if you rise, if you rise to success and you make it and you're uploading selfies with your Lamborghini and talking about how you made it and all that stuff, um, you take all the credit. It was all your work. And you forget, you forget God's sovereign grace in your life. The people he placed around you. The, the economy thriving at the, 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 the fruit, so that your career, like all the conditional things to be where you are is all the work of the sovereign Lord of the universe. The gifts he's given you. The people he's placed in your life. It's all his grace. It's all his grace. And we get in really dangerous waters when we try to, when we try to grab hold of God's glory. Because he, he takes his glory very serious. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, all good gifts come from God. So as each has received a gift from God, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak uh, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Watch this. To him belong glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's our response this morning is thank you, God. And now with what you've given me, how can I thank you and then go steward that for your glory and for the good of others, not for my kingdom, but for yours. And so the question though, that needs to be asked is why in the world in our text are the people of God from Judah now serving the Babylonian government and seeking its welfare? The very people that in 587 BC, 20 years, we're about to burn Jerusalem to the ground, destroy the walls, and exile everybody out of there, essentially, right? Why were they now rising to these high positions of influence and seeking the welfare of Babylon? This is why, because the prophet Jeremiah gave, them, gave the exiles this word. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent from exile into Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I love verse seven of that, that prophetic word. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for it. In its welfare you find your welfare. The message given, excuse me, to the exiles was don't fight, don't flee, but cause the city to flourish. Cause the city to flourish. And so if we were to look at the question, ask the question, well, how is the 21st century church in America to remain faithful to Jesus while living on foreign soil? I think two of the most common strategies for us, and I've talked about this a little bit, but I think the two most common strategies in the church today are fight and flight, right? Like, we'll fight the culture. We'll fight the culture. And, the, and then what we're showing the culture is that the primary ethic in the kingdom of God is hatred and condemnation. Because we come with our pitchforks and our torches and we're going to burn the place down, right? 
And then the other option is, is flight. Like, hey, kind of like the Benedict option. I haven't read the book, but I, so I can't, I'm not voting yes or no for the book. But that, that concept of like, the world's burning. We're going to step back and watch it burn and not get burned in the process. And so the chief ethic there that I think that we, we declare to the, to the people outside the kingdom of God is that the chief ethic there is apathy and fear. I don't care, apathy, apathy, fear. But however, there's a third option, and that's flourish. Cause the soil. We're, not in, we're, not, we're in the world, we're not of the world, but Jesus Christ in John 17 sends us into the world. Right? And often we blur that distinction of, oh, in, not of, so I'm going to keep my distance, when in fact Jesus says, yes, you're in, not of, but I send you into, into the world to cause to flourish. And I know uh, for the church, the persecuted church in the East, those three options are a little bit more nuanced than the options I presented, but I don't think it's as nuanced as we think it is for the church in the West. Flourish. Cause the soil we're on to flourish by both declaring and demonstrating the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We don't run from the culture in fear. We don't run towards it with pitchforks and hatred, but we run full sprint towards the world with the radical, life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. John, uh, Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Jesus says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus here is simply calling us to love others the way that we have been loved. And that way we've been loved is that love gets close. Love doesn't keep its distance. And that's what Jesus has done in my heart, and that's what Jesus has done for a lot of our stories, is that as we, were turn, as we were far away from him, Jesus stepped down and gets close and rescues us from the clutches of the kingdom of darkness. And so the primary ethic in the kingdom of God is, is love, is compassion, is cause to flourish, is, 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 is Christ died so that I might live. Now let me sacrificially die in a way so that others might flourish. Because everything we do Everything we do, everything God calls us to do, he calls us to simply do what he's already done for us to others. That's how this invisible God is made visible, is by us showing the world, this is what Jesus has done in my life. That's why I'm doing these sacrificial acts of love on your behalf. And so if we were to ask the question, what was God's response to us as we were his enemies living in sin and outright rebellion to him? Well, John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have a, a eternal life. Jesus was sent to us on our behalf. And in Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 says this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us, you see the indicative and the imperative, this is what Jesus has done and now this is what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus suffered outside the gate. He sanctified us by his blood. That's what he's done for us. And then the therefore comes in verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but seek the city that is to come. This world is not our home. Our home is coming. We're not there yet. Our job is to make sure that we go with the message and the hope of Jesus and go grab as many people with us on our journey home. He's saying, we have no lasting city here. Don't get too comfortable. 
But the most beautiful part about this is what was, we got asked the question, what was Jesus' posture towards us? Like, if we want to learn, how do we engage the culture? We can have strategies, we can have methods, but how about we look to our Savior first and foremost and then figure out, what has he done for me? That's how we are to engage the culture. What was Christ's posture towards me? What Jesus did for you and for me is he ran full sprint towards us in love to suffer and die on our behalf. So that, so that he could sanctify, what we learn here in verse 12, sanctify the people through his blood. That sanctify there is set apart. It is, it is a people devoted to God. Read in there maybe for the sake of, of our text this morning. A sanctify there being changing your citizenship that we looked at in Colossians 1. That he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, uh, of God. And also what we learn here is that our transfer of citizenship from the kingdom of darkness into the embrace of our heavenly father, that there was a cost, there was a price tag to that. To your redemption, to your, to, to, to your, to your citizenship transfer, there was a cost, there was a price to be paid. That's what we see here in Hebrews 12. And that cost, that price, was Jesus' blood. That's what it says here in verse 12. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. His death, his sacrifice, his suffering, his enduring hell for you so that you could inherit heaven. Forgiven of all your sins and reconciled to God forever. The price that had to be paid was the shedding of his own blood. And uh, Jesus, it's almost as if Jesus is, in one hand he sees the cost and he sees us in the other hand. And in this hand is the full cup of God's wrath against our sins and our wickedness, and, and the hell that he would have to endure. And then the other hand is our redemption, our redemption. And he's weighing it, and he's saying, is, is the cost worth it? And as we know, because we're on the other side, is that Jesus looks and he goes, yes, they are worth it. You were worth it. You were worth the price that was paid. You were worth the blood that was shed. You were worth the agony that Jesus endured because you're precious to him. That's how much value you have to him. He counted the cost. And he declared you worthy of that cost because that's how he loves you. That's how he loves you. And how it's so funny, we always wrestle with the fact of are we loved? And Jesus, he weighed the option and the highest price, the highest price he could pay. He says, I'm paying it for you so you can be with me in my kingdom and not perish here in this one. What a God we serve, right? Where in the world are you going to find a love like that, church? Where horizontally are you going to find someone as faithful, someone who died for you so that you could live, someone who suffered so you could flourish eternally, forever? Where? No one and nothing comes close to this Jesus. Nothing. And the reason I share all that is, is this, is you and I will never learn how to truly love this world as Christ calls us to until we first understand the radical love that Christ has for us. The lengths, the depths, and the widths of, of his love for us, what he truly paid for you to be with him in the kingdom of God forever. And so my question would be this, is do you know this Jesus? And do you truly know the love that he has for you? In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You want to know God's posture towards you? You look to Jesus and what he went, what he went 
to be with you forever. And so I want to uh, just take a minute or two for us to just go quiet and to, uh, to go before the Lord in prayer, silently where you're, where you're seated. And um, my challenge would be this, would just be reflecting on Jesus, the price that was paid, and then too, you know, often our response, what we see in the Gospels is to repent and believe. Repent is turning from. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal to you there's, if there's anything that you're holding on to that Jesus might be calling you to let go of today. And then too, when you give that to him, look to Jesus and who he is and what he's done and thank him for the work that he's done. And then I'll close this in prayer, but I just want to um, give you that opportunity to talk to your Savior this morning. So let's do that now. Father, just come before you grateful for the words you, you gave us, the words of Jesus in John 13, where he washes the disciples' feet. And it says in verse 12, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Father, we're just humbly blown away by Jesus and his posture towards us that he got on his hands and his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. And isn't that symbolic of what Jesus does in our hearts and in our lives? He goes low so we can go high. He grabs hold of some of the nastiest things about us. The deep recesses of our hearts that we want nobody to see. And he says, he says let me come and clean you. Let me come and wash you. And cleanse you from all your sins and trespasses. I will not count them against you. The very work, Jesus, that you came to do was a cleansing work. And you humble yourself. And you grab a hold of us.
and our sins and our filth, and you, and you bear that on yourself. And you take that upon yourself so that we can have the assurance that it's your work, your blood that has cleansed us. And we're forgiven. We've been set free. We have perfect union with you forever. Because Jesus, that's what you came to do was to clean us up to prepare your bride for the city that is to come. We're going to be dwelling with you forever, at feasting at your table. And for your church, man, when we keep that table in front of us, when the world today is offering us food and wine at their table, may we keep the table that is to come, the table of your fellowship before us forever. So I just pray, the Holy Spirit, help us to know the truth of your work for us, Jesus. It's sufficient. You said on the cross, it is finished. We're cleansed. We're forgiven. I do not hold your trespasses against you. What glorious news. If anyone here today has not tasted and seen this news, anyone here today does not know this Jesus, would you cry out to him in faith today? Would, would, it, would today be the day where you make the best decision of your life and you simply say yes to Jesus' yes to you on the cross? He's worth it. He's worth it. There's no better decision that you can make today than giving him your yes because he's given you his yes on the cross. And if that's you today, I just encourage you to pray this prayer with me. You say, Jesus, I turn from everyone and everything else that I've lived my life for. And I want to live life both with you and for you. I believe you are who you say you are. You are the son of God who died and rose again to forgive me of all my sins and bring me home to the arms of my heavenly Father. I place all my life and my trust into your hands, Jesus. Please come into my life now as my King and as my Savior and as my Lord and as my friend. And so, Father, I just, I just say yes and amen to your faithfulness to us shown wonderfully and beautifully and powerfully in the person and work of Jesus. We come before you grateful. We say thank you, thank you, thank you. To you alone, to you alone we give everything because you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. All glory, all honor, all praise belongs to you, Jesus. So we say thank you. In your name, amen.